Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today on the program, Putin compares himself to Peter the Great. We'll get a reality check on how today's Russian ruler is faring in his war against Ukraine. Also, there is widespread agreement now. The Iran nuclear deal is almost dead. This week, the IAEA announced Tehran will remove 27 cameras that have been monitoring nuclear sites for the international community. I'll talk to IAEA chief Rafael Mariano Grossi about what happens next. And average U.S. gas prices hit a record $5 a gallon. Overall inflation hits 8.6%, a 40-year high. Consumers are pessimistic about the state of the U.S. economy. What does the former, former Federal Reserve Chair Ben Bernanke think? I'll ask him. We are now living in a totally new era. That is what the 99-year-old Henry Kissinger said, commenting on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In an op-ed article last week, President Biden vividly outlined the stakes. He wrote, if Russia does not pay a heavy price for its actions, it will send a message to other would-be aggressors that they too can seize territory and subjugate other countries. It will put the survival of other peaceful democracies at risk, and it could mark the end of the rules-based international order and open the door to aggression elsewhere with catastrophic consequences the world over. In times like these, it seemed appropriate that the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, would deliver a major policy address, which he did late last month, except that he chose to give the talk on China. The speech itself contained nothing new. It was slightly more nuanced than the usual chest thumping that passes for a China strategy these days. The real surprise was that in the middle of the first major land war in Europe since 1945, with monumental consequences, Blinken would not lay out the strategy for victory, but instead change the subject. Washington's foreign policy establishment is so wrapped up in its pre-crisis thinking that it cannot really digest the fact that the ground has shifted seismically under its feet. Blinken declared that despite its aggression in Ukraine, Russia does not pose the greatest threat to the rules-based international order, instead giving that place to China. As Zachary Carabell suggests, this requires a willful blindness to two decades of Russian aggression. Russia has invaded Georgia and Ukraine and effectively annexed parts of those countries. It brutally unleashed its air power in Syria, killing thousands of civilians. In responding to Chechnya's desire for independence, it flattened large parts of the Russian Republic, including its capital, with total civilian casualties in that conflict estimated in the tens of thousands at least. Putin has sent assassination squads to Western countries to kill his enemies, has used money and cyber attacks to disrupt Western democracies, and most recently has threatened the use of nuclear weapons. 
Does any other country even come close? Ironically, one of the people who attended Blinken's speech was Senator Mitt Romney, who during his presidential campaign in 2012 warned that Russia posed the single largest threat to the United States. Without question, our number one geopolitical foe. Those, including myself, who dismissed his prognosis were wrong because we looked only at Russia's strength, which was not impressive. But Romney clearly understood that power in the international realm is measured by a mixture of capabilities and intentions. And while Russia is not a rising giant, it is determined to challenge and divide America and Europe and tear up the rules-based international system. Putin's Russia is the world's great spoiler state. This phenomenon of a declining power becoming the greatest danger to global peace is not unprecedented. In 1914, the country that triggered World War I was Austria-Hungary, an empire in broad decline and yet one determined to use its military to show the world it still mattered and to teach a harsh lesson to Serbia, which it regarded as a minor vassal state. Sounds familiar? America's dominant priority must be to ensure that Russia does not prevail in its aggression against Ukraine. And right now, trends are moving in the wrong direction. Russian forces are consolidating their gains in eastern Ukraine. Sky-high oil prices have ensured that money continues to flow into Putin's coffers. Europeans are beginning to talk about off-ramps. Moscow is offering developing nations a deal Get the West to call off sanctions, it tells them, and it will help export all the grain from Ukraine and Russia and avert famine in many parts of the world. Ukraine's leaders say it still does not have the weapons and training it needs to fight back effectively. The best China strategy right now, by the way, is to defeat Russia. Xi Jinping has made a risky wager in backing Russia so strongly on the eve of the invasion. If Russia comes out of this conflict a weak, marginalized country, that will be a serious blow to President Xi, who is personally associated with this alliance with Putin. If, on the other hand, Putin survives and somehow manages to stage a comeback, Xi and China will learn an ominous lesson, that the West cannot uphold its rules-based system against a sustained assault. Most of the people in top positions in the Biden administration were senior officials in the Obama administration in 2014, when Russia launched its first invasion of Ukraine, annexed Crimea, and intervened in eastern Ukraine. They were not able to reverse Moscow's aggression or even make Putin pay much of a price for it. Perhaps at the time they saw the greatest threat to global order as ISIS or Al-Qaeda, or they were focused on the pivot to Asia, or they didn't prioritize Ukraine enough. Well, now they have a second chance, but it is likely to be the last. Go to CNN.com slash for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. On Thursday, Vladimir Putin compared himself to none other than Peter the Great, the Russian Tsar, and suggested that his own mission as president was to return and restore land that belonged to Russia, just like his hero did in the 18th century. It seems to me that in recent days and weeks, Putin has been having more success in his war effort, 
but I wanted to check my math on that. So joining me now is CNN's senior international correspondent, Matthew Chance. Matthew, give us a sense of Russia's gains in the east, which appear to be happening around Severodonetsk right, right now. That's right. I mean, the gains are very slow. But uh, every day we're seeing reports coming from Severodonetsk, which is the last city that is nominally under Ukrainian government control uh, in the Luhansk region. Luhansk is half of Donbass, remember, and Donbass uh, is what the Russians say is their military priority at the moment. Every day we're seeing reports coming out of it, a little bit more Russian advancing, there's a bit of to and froing on the ground, but it seems a question of when, not if that that important key city uh, will fall completely under uh, Russian control. The Ukrainians, for their part, seem to be making it as difficult as possible, bringing the fight to a street-to-street level uh, to, on the one hand, neutralise the artillery advantage that the, the Russians have, but also to make it as, as painful as possible for the Russians uh, to declare what would be a big political victory for them when they take eventual control uh, over that city. Um, And of course, to divert Russian resources. Um, This is a a battle uh, for that Luhansk region that has cost not just the Ukrainians, but the Russians enormously. And of course, the more military personnel material they put in uh, to that battle, that fight, the less they're able to defend other areas that they've conquered elsewhere in Ukraine. And to some extent, Ukrainians say, They've been exploiting that by launching counteroffensives in the south of the country, for instance, over the past uh, several weeks. Um, you know, but also, it's, you know, it's depleting Russia's sort of energy as well. And so I, th- I think that the sense is, is that when this phase of the battle of this conflict uh, comes to a close, when it eventually does that, you know, there may well be a natural pause as both sides regroup and, you know, work out what they're going to do next and gather forces in order to do that for reading. Uh, Matthew, very briefly, um, we know about Russian casualties, but the Ukrainian government doesn't tell us much about their casualties. And what I'm hearing is they are pretty substantial as well. I've heard reports that say perhaps even 100 a day. And if you talk about deaths, you multiply that by three to get uh, casualties injured, uh, soldiers that can't return to the battlefield. Uh, do you have any sense of how, how tough this has been for Ukraine and Ukrainian soldiers? Well, I mean, it's clearly, it's clearly being very, it's very tough indeed, not least because of the, the way in which on the battlefield Ukrainian forces are outnumbered and outgunned by the Russian side. Uh, and that figure of 100 soldiers a day being killed, I mean, that comes from the president himself, of Zelensky, President Zelensky himself. That's, that's the estimate that he's put out there. You, you extrapolate that over a month, it's 3,000 a month which is an enormous cost. And other people in the presidential office have said it's actually much higher than that. It could be 200 people dead a day, it should be 6,000 a month. It's an enormously high price, whichever way you cut it, that the Ukrainians are paying just in terms of loss of life, never mind the injuries and the loss to their infrastructure, to defend um, uh, this country. But as you say, you say rightly, uh, the, the Russians are also paying a, a big price. Tens of thousands, it's estimated, of Russian troops um, have been killed. The Russians haven't spoken directly on that really since the, the beginning uh, of this conflict. I think so. one of the differences, though, is that actually, despite those heavy losses, Ukraine doesn't have a shortage of manpower. It has a lot of men that have been mobilized that are willing to go to the front. Russia has much more of a problem in that regard. Matthew, thank you so much. Always such a, so insightful to hear from you.
Next on GPS, the chief of the International Atomic Energy Agency on Iran and the nuclear deal, what may be a fatal blow to reviving it. Toward the end of last month, the U.S. special envoy for Iran said that Tehran could be just weeks away from having enough fissile material for a nuclear weapon. Then this Thursday, the International Atomic Energy Agency announced that Iran plans to remove cameras that enable the agency to monitor the Islamic Republic's nuclear program. 27 cameras that were installed at nuclear facilities as part of the 2015 Iran deal. The IAEA's Director General, Mariano Rafael Grossi, said the removal could be a fatal blow to the hope of reviving that deal. Mr. Grossi joins me now. Welcome, sir. Can you explain to us why this issue of taking 27 cameras out is so dangerous to the prospects of a new deal? Hello. Good to talk to you. Well, it is quite uh, serious. We're talking about 27 cameras. And, and by the way, they have been removed uh, as we speak. You said they had a plan. Now they have been removed uh, together with some other uh, online monitoring systems that we used to have. The issue here is very simple. The less my inspectors and my analysts see what's uh, happening uh, in Iran, the less ability we have to know how much material they are enriching how many centrifuges they are putting together. And so this is obvious a very, very serious um, thing with regards to not only the possibility of uh, reviving the 2015 uh, agreement, the JCPOA, but in general terms. I have said that in, a, in such a situation, I might not no longer be in a position to confirm the peaceful nature of the uh, Iran, Iranian nuclear program writ large. So it is indeed a very, very serious move they have uh, taken. So to, to understand it, what you're saying in a sense is even if, let's say, six months from now, they were to go back mm -hmm. and, you know, things were to go back at that point with a six month gap with no information, it's difficult for you to know what they've made, what they ferreted away, what they've hidden. Correct. It would be extremely difficult. We would have to mount a very ad hoc system with new declarations, with the ability uh, for my inspectors to go back, to check records, to look into places. Uh, so the more, the, the more, um, the longer the lapse uh, um, without the visibility we need, the more difficult it will be because no one, no one can go into an agreement without knowing what your baseline is. You go into an agreement saying, OK, uh, we have uh, so much of this. We are going to control. We are going to ship out that amount of material. But without me, I mean me, the IAEA saying this, these are the amounts, then it may be well the case that there, there are unaccounted for um, amounts of material or inventory um, that, uh, you know, is escaping the eye. So, frankly, I don't see in who's in interest is to curtail uh, inspectors. Normally, uh, history tells us and recent history tells us that it is never a good thing to start saying to international inspectors, go home. When you go this way, normally uh, things get much more problematic. And this is what I'm saying now. 
And this is what I'm telling, first of all, uh, my Iranian counterparts, we have to sit down now, we have to redress this situation, we have to continue working together. I assume that what the Iran, your Iranian counterparts are saying to you is, look, the United States pulled out of the deal and therefore killed the deal. Why should we continue to observe a deal that the other party is not observing? Well, but that might have been valid, if I may, um, a year ago when uh, there was no process to try to revive the deal. To the best of my understanding, unless I've missed something in the last uh, few minutes, uh, no one has said it is over. No one has said the attempts to revive this agreement are done. Uh, so when, when we take this, these steps, we make this way back to an agreement uh, extremely more, more difficult. And I don't see, I, I fail to grasp the, 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 the end game about this. There's the, the only way. Uh, for Iran to get the confidence, the trust they, uh, they so uh, badly need in order to move their economy forward and to do all the things that they profess they want to do is to allow the inspectors of the IEA to be present. If they start uh, cutting uh, the connections, if they, if they start removing uh, cameras, I don't see how this is going to happen. Um, am I right in saying that you've met with uh, the Prime Minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett, recently? Yes, I have met him, met with him. I, I meet, uh, you know, um, many heads of state and government, yes. Including in, your, in your experience, briefly, because we're, we're running out of time, in your conversation, do you, get, do you get the sense that for Israel, things are reaching a critical point and you could imagine the Israelis taking some extreme measures if... Iran continues on the current path? Good question to put to Israel. My message to Israel uh, on this and on other things is that the IAEA can do this job. The international inspectors, when given the access they require, can give the international community the confidence that no one is going to proliferate or to add uh, nuclear weapons uh, in the in the Middle East. So this is for me. This was uh, very important. And as I, as the head of an international organization, I must talk to everybody. I hope every, this is well understood. Mr. Grossi, pleasure to have you on, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Next on GPS, inflation in the U.S. hit a 40-year high last month. There is a big debate on how bad the economy really is and what the government, the Federal Reserve, uh, President Biden, should do about it. I will ask the former Fed chair, Ben Bernanke, for his views on this debate. The latest consumer price index came out Friday morning, showing inflation is growing again. The report showed that the average American consumer paid 8.6% more last month for a basket of goods and services than he or she would have paid a year earlier. President Biden's top economic advisor admitted Friday that that was uncomfortably high. So what should we think about the state of the U.S. economy and what to do about it? I want, wanted to ask former Fed Chair Ben Bernanke for his perspective. He's the author of a new book, 21st Century Monetary Policy. Ben Bernanke, welcome. Thanks for being on the show. Good to be here. So when you look at the polls, um, something like 75% of Americans in most surveys think 
the economy is seriously in bad shape or on the wrong track or depending on how you describe it. Do you think that's right? How would you characterize the, the American economy these days? Well, to put that number in context, they've been asking that question for decades. And people always say that the economy and the country are heading in the wrong direction, but they themselves are doing OK. So you have to put a little bit of context around that. But that being said, the U.S. economy today is a mixed bag. We've had a lot of growth. We had a deep recession. But last year, the economy grew between five and six percent, created six million jobs. The labor market is very hot. Wage increases are going to particularly the lowest paid workers. So all that is positive. But on the other hand, we also have uh, inflation that we haven't seen for 40 years. And that uh, particularly anyone who goes to the gas station or the grocery store is quite aware of that. And that is cutting into people's living standards. And even people getting wage increases are not seeing uh, real increases in their ability to consume. So uh, it is a, a very much a mixed bag at this point. And the big debate raging in Washington these days is what is it going to look like six months from now or seven months from now as the Fed tries to tackle inflation? And as you know, Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, says the Fed is going to have to act much more aggressively than it's acting now. Effectively, I think what he's saying is it is going to have to induce a recession in order to bring inflation under control. You know, in other words, it's going to have to slow down economic activity by raising rates so people's mortgages go up, so it costs more to borrow money, therefore they'll spend less. You've got to do all that, which will put the economy into a recession, in order to tackle inflation. Do you, do you agree with Larry Summers? No, I don't. Um, I think a recession is possible. Economists are very bad at predicting recessions. But I think the Fed has a, a decent chance, a reasonable chance of achieving a what uh, Jay Powell calls a softish landing, either no recession or a very mild recession to bring inflation down. When you look at the economy uh, going forward, uh, does it look like the stagflation of the 1970s? Uh, and, and does it feel like, uh, you know, that, that, that period, it felt like people were out of economic tools to solve the problems. Do you feel like we're in a situation like that today? No, I don't. And I could go on forever. My, my book uh, covers the 70s in some detail and points out a lot of differences between then and now. Though a very basic difference is that the inflation of the 70s lasted for 13 or 14 years, not six months. Uh, so people became very, very used to inflation and a huge inflation psychology developed. And that was very, very difficult for um, uh, Paul Volcker, the chair of the Fed in the early 80s, to break that inflation psychology. That's why he had to uh, bring down the hammer as hard as he did in the early 80s. So I think it's a very different situation. I think we, today we have a Federal Reserve that knows that it's responsible for inflation. It's going to take the lead. It's got a lot of credibility. We've had low inflation now for 40 years. Uh, it's got political support. The president uh, just came out recently saying the Fed is independent and he would support Jay Powell's decisions. The Congress has also been supporting the Fed. So I think it's just a very different situation. Fair to say, Ben Bernanke, you're saying uh, the economy is not as bad as it looks. The Fed has things under control. Don't worry. Well, no, I'm, some, some things could go wrong. I'm counting on the supply side to look better. I'm some, counting on the supply chains to begin to improve. And there's some evidence that they are. 
Uh, I'm hoping and, and, and guessing that uh, oil prices and food prices will, will at least stabilize and, and preferably begin to moderate. Things could, could go bad if, if, uh, if all those things don't work out and people start losing confidence in the Fed, then the Fed might have to crack down much harder. So the Larry Summers scenario you described earlier is certainly a possibility if uh, inflation persists and people lose confidence in the Federal Reserve and inflation psychology develops and you get a wage price spiral, all those things we saw in the 70s. And that's why it was so painful for Paul Volcker to uh, to end inflation in the early 80s. So I, I'm not being a Pollyanna here, but I'm saying it's not necessarily going to be uh, a catastrophic situation either, because, again, if we get some help from supply side, we have an underlying pretty strong economy. We, people, the uh, labor market is just roaring right now. Uh, people have good, uh, pretty good savings. Uh, all those things suggest that uh, with some luck and if the supply side improves, that the Fed can get inflation down without imposing the kind of costs that we saw in the early 80s. Ben Bernanke, always a pleasure. Your book is 21st Century Monetary Policy, the Federal Reserve from the Great Inflation to COVID-19. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Thuri. Next on GPS, President Biden was in Los Angeles this week meeting other Western Hemisphere leaders. The big story emerging from the Americas is a huge swing to the populist left. I'll tell you what it means when we come back. This week's Western Hemisphere Summit in Los Angeles perhaps should have been called the Summit of Some of the Americas. Mexico's President Andres Manuel López Obrador skipped the meeting because the U.S. didn't invite leaders from Nicaragua, Venezuela or Cuba. AMLO, as he's called, was sworn in four years ago as Mexico's first leftist president in almost three quarters of a century. He's also a populist, and he's indicative of a leftist populist wave that seems to be riding through the region. Let me bring in Shannon O'Neill. She is the Senior Fellow for Latin American Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Describe the wave, uh, because it's happening in Chile, it's happening in Mexico, it seems to be happening in Colombia, uh, and then, of course, there's Brazil, uh, largest country in Latin America. Um, why is it happening in all these places at the same time? You know, as I look at these elections and the changes in power that we're seeing and who's coming in, I would describe it more as an anti-incumbent wave than necessarily a leftist wave. And what we are seeing all over Latin America is voters getting out and voting for the non-establishment, voting for the outsider. The pandemic hit this region harder than almost any other region in the world in terms of fatalities, in terms of the cost to the economies, to formal sector jobs and the like. So people are really living in a precarious situation. So they have looked for politicians, for candidates that have told them they're going to provide something different, that they're going to get away from the old system that is seen as corrupt, that hasn't fixed a lot of Latin America's problems. And so they're turning to these outsiders, these populists. So when I look at a place uh, like Chile, which was in many ways regarded as you know the kind of poster child of Latin America, um, people describe uh, it because of its fast growth rates. They would say Chile is an East Asian country that just happens to be in Latin America. Well, now it seems like it has a very left-wing government. And in fact, they're rewriting the Constitution. And there are all kinds of plans that seem very, you know, it seems to be very much a kind of left-wing Constitution with a lot of progressive ideals. 
uh, written right into the Constitution. How, how big a shift is it in Chile? Chile, I think, really is a bellwether here on what might happen in Latin America. There's a hopeful side to that, but then also a really cautionary tale. And so Boric, the new president of Chile, is in his 30s. He's a millennial, and he is from the progressive left. He believes in you know, broad social rights. He believes in environmental actions. He also believes in democracy and working with democratic checks and balances in the Congress and, and like. He is working with the Constituent Assembly, which is forming this new constitution, and they are more to the left. In fact, almost all of the members are not traditional members of political parties. And so what we will see over the next couple of months, because they'll vote on this constitution in a referendum come the fall, is whether or not Chileans go for this constitution. Right now, it's a big question. What about Brazil? Because there you have a situation where uh, it seemed like there was a kind of Trump-like populist, Bolsonaro, and many of his, uh, much of his appeal was sort of Trump-like. It was cultural issues. It was a lot of, you know, the sense of resentment against the elites. But now he's very unpopular. And what's happened is you have a real old-fashioned left, left-wing populist, Lula, the former president, who seems to be roaring ahead in the polls. Uh, is that a story of how in Latin America these cultural issues don't have as much uh, traction and that old-fashioned economic issues still do have a lot of traction? I think that's right, and it is also, I think, very telling of this anti-incumbent wave you're seeing voters turn to anybody but Bolsonaro, the current president. So you have this anti-incumbent. Strangely, the anti-incumbent is someone who spent their whole life in politics and actually has been president of Brazil before in the form of Lula. So it's less here, I think, about the policies that are laid out. And in many of these elections, there's very few policies actually being put on the table. It's more about someone who's coming in and promising to change things. And that's why when you look at AMLO, Lopez Obrador, who is, uh, you know, when you go to Mexico, there's just so much resentment of him among the, the, the kind of business community and even in kind of the mainstream cent- center, I would say. Um, but you point out that in his own way, he's very Trump-like. Explain what you mean. So there's a similar appeal in the sense that AMLO is very socially conservative. So this is not a president who supports gay rights or abortion. He's made an enemy out of the women's movement, the feminist movement. Uh, This is a president who is anti-environment. And this is also a president in Mexico who has little time for democratic niceties. He doesn't care about democratic checks and balances, about transparency, accountability. He frequently attacks the press uh, and columnists and journalists, much the way Trump does. Uh, So he has a lot of similarities in governing style and in many ways substance as well. Does it mean bottom line a very different Latin America for the United States and the world to deal with much less reform minded, much less democratic, much less open to in the international economy? No, I think as we look around the world generally, many countries on the world are much less open to the international economy economy, including the United States. And so here, Latin America is no different. I think as we start seeing industrial policy arise all over the world, we'll start seeing that in many of these nations led by some of these leaders. You know, that said, this is a region that generally has remained open to trade or have been open to ties to the United States. Latin America basically lost out in the globalization of the last 30 years. It did not hook into global supply chains, at least not in the value added part. They sold raw materials and they bought finished goods, but they didn't get into the manufacturing that 
so many Asian economies or Eastern European economies got into. For better or for worse, as the United States doubles down on supply chain resilience, as they talk about reshoring and nearshoring, this provides an opening for Latin America. Shannon, always good to talk to you. Thank you. My pleasure. Next on GPS, David Gergen has worked for four different presidents. How does he grade this one? I ask him when we come back. David Gergen knows leadership. He's been an advisor to no fewer than four sitting presidents, Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Bill Clinton. He's also the founding director of the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School. Now he's written a book about all that he's learned over the years. It's called Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. David Gergen, pleasure to have you on. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You've written a book about leadership, so yes. let's talk about the leader of okay. the United States, yes. Joe Biden. How yes. do you think he's doing? Um, not as well as he should be. Uh, he's, I, from my perspective, early on, I thought he was going to be a very consequential leader because I did think that the empathy he had, the understanding he had, and the inner strength that comes from dealing with the setbacks and the crucible moments that he has experienced in life, I thought they would steal him for the presidency, harden him up. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's done some things right. I think his heart's still in the right place. But it's increasingly hard to tell what the, what the goals are here. They, they, they need to whittle this down to two or three major goals and keep hitting that and get them accomplished, both in foreign policy and in domestic policy. This is the puzzle about yeah, Biden. Many of his policies are popular, but he himself has stunningly low approval ratings. Do I you agree. understand that? I don't fully understand it. Um, I do think that uh, the, the messaging has not been his strength. And, it, and it going for the people, you know, he so often has something to say, but he puts it at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. If you've really got something important to talk to the American people about, do it in prime time. You know, we can handle 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And, it's, and the, the role of the leader is to be a teacher. That is, that is an important part of the, you know, FDR used to argue moral leadership is all about the president making choices and trying to bring people along uh, on difficult issues. And there hasn't been a lot of that. Um, I, I continue to think highly of him as an individual. Uh, but I would also suggest, I, I, I worry about the idea of having a Biden versus Trump in 2024 when both men are in their 80s. We've never been there before, and I, I, I don't think that's healthy. The, the presidency is too complicated a place, and it requires fine judgment. You only get the hard calls. You get the 52-48 calls. They, you know, the easy ones are decided somewhere else, down, down the road. You have a really wonderful uh, uh, thought here uh, in the book called Leadership Starts from Within. Yes. Explain what that means. Well, I work for Nixon, and you know he was the best strategist, as I say, I've, I've ever seen. But he had demons inside him, and that he had not learned to control. And eventually, they did him in. That happens to a lot of leaders, especially when you get on top. You think, I'm so good, the rules don't apply to me. You know, I'm I'm special, and I can get away with it. Uh, and what that what that leads to usually is some sort of disaster. Uh, and so, I do believe that you have to learn how to. Con to understand yourself and control yourself before you can exercise leadership and provide service to others. I think it's really, your journey starts with you. You've got to get yourself anchored. You have to know what your values are. You have to know where your true north is. And then in a complicated world, they can serve you well. 
when you're being buffeted by in five or six different directions. Um, where do you find leadership that you admire in the world today? Well, the one we've been watching is Zelensky. Um, and, you know, you, but you have to ask the question, where are America's Zelenskys? Where are our heroes? Where are the people we can point to and tell our kids, you know, this is a good role model for you? Societies need that. And I think we've gotten so much into the habit of when people get up, we want to tear them down. You know, when, when Colin Powell was going to run for president, the first thing, the first stories that popped out, what, where did he go wrong in Vietnam? I mean, he had done so many things, and, and yet it was discouraging to watch that. Why, are we, why, why do we have this need to make sure nobody stays on top very long? I, I'm, I'm not sure. It's not, it's, there's something that's unhealthy in this society that we need. To, that again, I think new generations will help to change that. Do you think we're sort of living in a time where it's difficult to imagine that kind of heroic model yes. of leadership? Yes, it's very difficult. Social media, yeah, all yeah. that. Yeah, in fairness, you know, the, the, how you get things done today is different. It's, it's evolved. We used to talk about the great man, the man on the white horse. But now what we look for is, is constructive collaboration, teams. You know, the picture you remember of Jack Kennedy that stands out is him alone in the Oval Office, hunched over a globe in the dusk, and he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders. Versus today when you know, Barack Obama is down there in the, in the Situation Room and they've got there chasing Osama, the picture is like seven or eight or ten people around him, you know, his team. And increasingly leadership comes through teams. Finally, you say maintain a celestial spark. Yes, that was George Washington. And he had a little copybook about, you know, how to, how to live a good life. And he was, took it very seriously. But the last, last item on it was to remember the celestial spark in your life. And that goes to the quote I used uh, about hearts touched with fire. It comes from Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., who was grievously wounded in the Civil War at least three times, left for dead on the battlefield. But he gave a speech 20 years later and, in which he talked about how important the Civil War uh, had been for his generation. And he said, you have, to, you have to live in the passions of your time. If you don't do that, you're less than a man. But he talked about in our generation, we were blessed. We were blessed. He's talking about people who went out and got killed on the battlefield. We were blessed to have hearts touched with fire. And it was really meaningful for us that we, that we lived in the passions of our time. And I think, you know, we need to be teaching our young folks that. David Gergen. You're a great teacher. Thank you, sir. It's good to be Thank with you. you. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.